0: Behind the Knife, The Surgery Podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Hello, and welcome to this special episode of Behind the Knife, The Surgery Podcast, where we will be discussing an exciting, deeply personal and sometimes nauseating topic, parenthood in residency. My name is Debbie Lee. I'm one of the postdoctoral research fellows at the Surgical Outcomes and Quality Improvement Center at Northwestern University, and also a general surgery resident at Loyola University Medical Center. It's my privilege to be joined by my mentor, Dr. Yorong Hu, as my co-host. Dr. Hu is a pediatric surgeon at the Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago and co-PI for the second trial. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This will be the first podcast on
2: surgical education that we were asked to do. And I thought this was such an important topic, given the years of life that residency falls during. And so we've invited two awesome guest speakers, and I'm super excited to share with you guys.
1: Yes, we're joined by Dr. Erica Ringel, GI critical care surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a national expert in this topic, as featured in the New York Times.
3: Hi, Debbie and Yurang. It's great to be here, and I'm so excited to record this podcast with you guys on a topic that I'm obviously very passionate about, and I'm excited to have this platform to talk about it.
1: We are also joined by Dr. Eugene Kim, pediatric surgeon at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, recent past president of Association for Academic Surgery, where he gave an enlightening talk that brought the appropriate attention in action to safeguard the next generation of epidemic surgeons.
0: Thanks very much. It's great to be here with everybody. Thanks for the invitation.
2: Actually, first, I kind of wanted to ask Debbie why she thought this topic was sometimes nauseating.
1: <laughs> well, that's what I've been told. I had not experienced the pregnancy before, but I've been told from my co-workers' attendings that pregnancy can be hard during residency, especially when you're operating for an extended period of time. And I think as a trainee, that is always a difficult topic to talk about, even with your mentors. So Drs. Rangel and Kim, how did you become interested in this topic?
3: My interest came because I had my first son as a fourth-year surgical resident, and that was 12 years ago. So I think things have changed since then. But back at that time, there were very, very few women who had kids in their clinical years. and. That meant there were all sorts of challenges from having exceedingly short maternity leave and a lot of guilt and worry that if you took any time off or you asked for any special treatment for like a lighter rotation close to term, that that would strain your co-residents who were already working at their peak performance and working as hard as they could. There was the stigma of being pregnant, sort of the realization of how hard it was in practice to actually pump at work being a senior resident, and then the strain of childcare. There was definitely this need or wish that I had that I could talk about those issues with someone who had done it before me. But at the time, I think mentorship was pretty scarce, too. And since then, social media really sort of blew up. And so then I would hear so many more stories that sounded so similar to mine. And actually, there were stories that were a lot worse than mine. And it was a great space and very cathartic to talk about some of those things with my colleagues and peers to share those challenges. But then I also realized that if we kept talking about those issues behind the scenes, it wasn't going to be anything more than a venting session and it wasn't going to go anywhere unless we had some data to fuel that.
0: I I think that, you know, over the years from residency into the years I've been uh, a faculty attending, we've seen a lot of our partners have children. And it seems like for a field that everything is regimented to the size gloves we wear, the type of staplers we use—that we didn't have this figured out at all, and it was always up in the air. And it was like reinventing the wheel every time someone had a child. The call schedule was thrown up in the air. Much less for the new mom—you know, how were they going to get childcare? What were the provisions for them in a variety of different ways? They, they were just left to struggle. And to see this happen over and over on a small scale, just within one group, was disappointing. As I mentioned in my AAS presidential talk, I think the real fuel to light this initiative, this project, this study came from one of my partners, Evelyn Chu. She was someone who was the best of our group, one of our best fellows who graduated, an incredible clinician, surgeon, and just an incredible work ethic. And she was not one to slow down. She was not one to ask for help. And she was, I think, cracking out. Over ten thousand RVUs in the year prior to her delivery, and for those who didn't get a chance to listen to the talk, Evelyn was becoming quite swollen from carrying twins. Uh, twins that were very hard for her to conceive, and she was really suffering from all of the things that people see from some pregnancies: back pain, carpal tunnel. Finally, you know, she had decided that she was going to take a break a couple of weeks before and this was all very much agreed upon by the group and we welcomed that and sadly literally the first week off after stopping work her mom had come by to visit her and found that Evelyn wasn't able to speak and and that led to a series of emergencies which included uh, a transfer to the hospital c section of her twins who fortunately are, are doing very well but it also revealed that she had a hemorrhagic stroke, which led to a number of further surgeries, critical care stays, and and rehabilitation. I'm, I'm so happy she's doing well now. But I remember being with our partners around her bedside in the ICU, intubated, just utterly floored by that for what was supposed to be such a wonderful and happy event for her and her family and for our group to turn out that way. I. I Inside, I just kept asking myself, uh, what could we as a group have done differently? How could we have better supported her to help prevent something like this?
3: So before I had the opportunity to work with Eugene, we had some of those questions about what the experience of pregnancy during residency specifically was like. And we did a national survey and we found that, you know, two thirds of people are actually really worried about how their work schedules impacting their health or the health of their child. But most everybody doesn't see anything because they worry about the stigma of asking for some sort of modification to their schedule. And stigma now is still as prevalent as it was. Pat Turner looked at this more than 10 years ago, and things really haven't changed that much in terms of the level of stigma people feel. In maternity leave, formal policies at programs were pretty scarce, even though they were formal ABS rules. So people didn't have a great understanding of how they were supposed to take that leave and practice how it was going to be implemented in their program. So most residents got six weeks of time off or less, and most people were disappointed by that length of leave and felt like they really needed more to adjust. Coming back was just as hard, if not harder. Almost 100% of people really wanted to breastfeed, but more than half of them ended up stopping. And they talked about things like having no access to a lactation room near the operating room and finding it really difficult to speak up when they were in the OR. And they really, really needed to pump because they were going to leak and they, they couldn't say anything. I touched a little bit about the lack of mentorship, but that was something that was seen sort of nationally. People found it hard. They didn't see a lot of faculty around them who could talk about what it was like to sort of balance that new motherhood with all of the work demands. And I think the biggest takeaway for me was that all these individual issues added up to be a workforce problem. So 40 percent of residents were saying they really seriously thought about leaving residency. 30% of them were saying if a female student came to me for advice, I would advise her not to go into surgery because it's so hard to balance being a mom with being a surgeon. And that's alarming to me. I think as half of medical students are coming out of our medical schools, if we're hoping to recruit the best of them, having a big cohort of them so concerned about this major aspect of life being unable to balance with the profession is going to be an impediment to recruitment in the future.
1: Can you walk us through your most recent paper in JAMA surgery? So while we were doing the residency
3: study, there were actually a lot of women who wrote us or emailed us or responded to the survey and said they really wanted to talk about pregnancy complications and infertility. So that really nicely dovetailed into Eugene's experience. And so we put together this national survey kind of during covid And we had collaboration from all these surgical societies to put out a survey to look at what the rate of pregnancy complications were. We compared women surgeons' complications against complications of the partners of male surgeons. We found out that women were a lot more likely to delay having a child because of training compared to the male surgeons. They were more likely to need assisted reproduction. And the striking thing was that they had a one point seven higher odds of having a major pregnancy complication compared to the partners of the male surgeons. And so that was, you know, even after we controlled for all the obvious things like age and work hours and twin pregnancies and IVF. And then we tried to find out what the biggest risk factors were. And one of the highest risk factors was operating twelve or more hours a week during your last trimester. So that goes back to what Eugene was talking about with Evelyn's pregnancy and sort of how we can change things going forward with this, you know, underlying drive to keep working at 110% until the day you deliver. And I think that kind of push to keep working was also really obvious when we looked at how miscarriages were handled. So we saw that women had over twice the miscarriage rate of the general population, even looking at sort of the same age women. And of those, the majority took zero days off after they had a pregnancy loss. And that was even pregnancy losses up to 20 weeks. So I think that really made a statement to me that it's time that we have some change in how we practice. We've talked about this before, Erica, about the
2: stigma and whether it's internal or external. And we kind of think they're all the same thing, actually. Like, I I feel like I waited and, and I don't know that I would have been able to pinpoint that it was residency specifically. Right. It was just more like I didn't feel like I could do it but would I have felt that way if residency were more supportive I guess I'm wondering how you felt your experience was Erica you said you were probably one of the first
3: yeah I think I was I was the second person in my program to have a child outside of research years I think I went into it with a little bit of naivete I was I had transferred into this program as a categorical from another program where I had seen it a little bit more often And I think I sort of had blinders on that it was going to be okay. And I think it was a little bit of an awakening when I told people I was pregnant and just the amount of surprise that people expressed. And I think to your words about whether stigma is real or perceived, it's all the same. You perceive stigma because of an overall underlying culture. And I think culture in surgery is kind of This concept of this is the way it's been done for many, many years, and this is just how we do things around here. And so when you're breaking that mold, I don't think that any surgical trainee or surgeon wants to break the mold of how tradition has been. And so the surprise and a lot of curiosity and sort of maybe well-intentioned comments, but people asking me if I was going to maybe choose a more family-friendly subspecialty, those things sort of added up. I also experienced that. And I
2: was faculty at the time, but I remember telling someone I was pregnant with my second kid and they said, <laughs> can you believe you're
3: pregnant again? I was like, yes, yes, I can. <laughs> like, I do know how that works. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, you know, one of the first comments, the first person I told, I was pretty far along. I was like 21 weeks or something by the time I told somebody I was pregnant, mostly because I was sort of terrified about the reaction. And, and he was one of the administrative chief residents. Who made the schedule and he was actually a friend but his first surprise was shock and his second reaction was oh my god we have to tell the program director because we have to figure out what we're going to do about the schedule you know now that i'm years out i could totally understand how important it is to make space creating that six weeks even though it's not a lot of time from maternity leave but it's a lot of manpower to fill but because we were so unprepared as a program to implement it in practice, all I sort of worried about was, oh, my pregnancy is going to be a burden on how they're doing the schedule, how they're going to staff cases. And that sat with me through the remainder of my pregnancy. And it meant that even if I didn't feel good, I would never say anything because I realized in that moment just how burdensome this pregnancy was going to be. And I think that many women put that on themselves as well. And so they're afraid They may ruminate in private about, gee, this probably doesn't seem very healthy, but they're not going to speak up because they're more worried about hurting their colleagues or whether saying anything is going to change their
0: reputation at work. And I think that with regards to residencies or even when you're faculty, it just highlights the importance of having a system set up. And to plan for these type of things, and to just give residents the freedom to have children when they think it's appropriate for them and their families, and that's why it's such a problem. Because when it happens, there's no backup system.
1: So, Dr. Kent, are there some places that do it well?
0: I think some programs are well intentioned. At, at our institution, and I'm very proud of this. One of our male partners had a child, and he took ten weeks for tardity, which I've heard a lot of people who say that that was unbelievable. I was personally thrilled about that and there was not a single one of us who did not want to support what the the policy was. I think we thought that was great. It did create some scheduling issues. There's no doubt about that. Using a partner in a thin system for that long certainly does. So it goes to show while that particular system is well intentioned, it hasn't filled in the back end with how to fully support the group, you know. So there's there's still pieces of the puzzle that need to be worked out.
3: And I think kind of jumping ahead to how things will change the foreseeable future for residency training, the board recently, because 2019, have included non-childbearing parents in their parental leave policies. And that, that's only the extension of two weeks of time off. But I think that's a start. And we'll see if men are actually going to take that two weeks off. But I definitely agree with Eugene that this is going to become and it should become a normal part of young adult life. And as we see more people, men and women, taking that parental leave, it'll become more obvious that we need to have a defined system in place. And whether that means hiring more physician extenders or hiring moonlighters or, you know, locum's work, you know, which is not able to be done everywhere. but Those are the things that we're going to have to think about and invest in if we want to sustain the longevity of surgeons.
2: Question about gender neutral parental leave policies. Why wouldn't men take it?
3: We looked at this. We did interviews with program directors and they're saying most men are taking a week off. And it ends up being sort of there's multiple reasons. And one of them is that they kind of just do it in this ad hoc approach. The resident has to work with his colleagues on who's going to cover his leave, and as a result, and I say his loosely, I, I mean the non-childbearing parent, because it's such a short duration, the faculty almost that they're gone, and and yet the reasons why they take such little leave, when we talked to the residents, they felt like it was because there was even more stigma against the non-childbearing parent taking time off because they didn't have a physical need for it, and the benefits of them being around for their new baby was sort of these intangible things. So they would hear from faculty, program doctors would talk about how faculty would talk about how it used to be. You know, when my wife had a baby, I wasn't even in the delivery room or I barely made it to the delivery room. And it becomes carried forward to the new generation that that's the expectation. And so I think changing that dialogue and changing what's normal is really important. And it starts with people starting to take a little bit longer time even if you didn't personally bear the child
2: yeah i totally agree that to reduce the stigma we can't make leave something that only women take and that only women need i think we all agree here that infants are more than just recovering from delivery <laughs> like there's this whole bonding phase figuring out how to have a child at home
0: that takes some real time and those first few months are really brutal i always Describe to some of my new parent friends that it's the dirty little secret. No one talks about the first two to three months. The parents just disappear. (laughs) It's essentially you're on call 24-7 for that child. And they're waking up every couple of hours crying. They need to be changed. And so that is real work that's put in. And so for my colleague who was out those first 10 weeks, it was no party or vacation by any means. I know he was working hard and would send an occasional picture with him passed out on the couch with the baby on top of him. So
3: I think, in a lot of ways, coming back is a respite from yeah. how hard you were working at home. You know, it's absolutely an unforgiving, a constant barrage <laughs> of crying and diapers and feeding. And any sort of misconception that people are taking a break or a vacation has to be dispelled because it is really hard work. And to be cognizant that when people first come back, they have double duty, right? To have on top of that, the usual burdens of being in the OR and seeing patients, it's it's almost unmanageable. So having any sort of support from the workplace is really critical to keep your morale
1: up. But what do you think about parenthood as... A trainee, like, what are the challenges that are being faced by them? And what are things that have been implemented to really change that for the trainees so they don't feel as much stigma around getting pregnant during their clinical years?
3: So I think culture is second to change after policy. And to that, I Look at how the 80-hour work week was implemented a decade and a half ago. And, you know, when that first rolled out, it was really difficult first to put into practice. And then culture still lagged far behind it. I think it still does. But without starting with policy, it never would have happened. And after the policy goes into place, it's really, really important for leadership to continually endorse it, continually be looking to see if that's a lived experience of people at their institution. And the same applies here. You know, the American Board of Surgery was kind of the first step. So at a national level, they became a lot more flexible for the childbearing parent. So, you know, they allowed you to stockpile your vacation time, if you will, to make a longer leave. You could sit for your written boards and your PGY-4 year if you had the case requirements done. You could take a six-year option for training and spread your training out over six years. And I think most importantly, you could extend your training a little past that June graduation if you needed a few more weeks off. It didn't mean that June 30th. In practice, I think it's hard. It, programs are very different in whether they're able to offer all of those things that the ABS allows. And just because the ABS allows it doesn't mean that the programs can support it because you got to think about, you know, if they have the financials to support that person, if the contract needs to be extended if they're there past June 30th. So there are the logistical challenges of that. But it's a first step and I think it's really important. Since we first started doing this work, we've noticed a lot more programs have entered maternity leaves. And we kind of repeated a program director study that had first been done by Yale about five years ago. And the number of programs that have increased their formal maternity leave policies is striking. So that speaks to the fact that people are listening and they they know it matters. The next step will be paternity leave, which I think will have to follow because the ABS now allows a non-childbearing parent to take leave, but we still have some things to work on going forward.
2: I thought what was really striking about that study was just how people just came out and say, like, I don't think that women should have children during residency, right? Like weren't even shy about putting that out there. And do you think that has changed since you guys redid yeah. the work? People.
3: Thought that having a child was a burden to colleagues, and that if a woman was going to have a child, the best time to have it was during her research years. And to what Eugene said, that we need to support people who are ready to have kids no matter when it is. When we repeated the study, I think some of the program directors clarified they thought that how people were perceived after having a child had a lot to do with the pre pregnancy reputation of that resident. So if that resident was a hard worker, from the outset, then they would be more apt to be supported by their colleagues, which I think is probably human nature. But that's very different than saying you just should have had a child during your research years. Yeah, I think
2: halo horn effect is definitely a thing in, in surgical education,
3: but it's a little sad that
2: that should extend to only some people deserve to have children.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think we all see it, right? It's human nature. You have a hard worker and then they need help. And of course, you're going to bend over backwards to help that person. But it shouldn't be left to that sort of just culture driven or personality driven help. It should be help should be there because there are systems in place to support everybody. Agree. And to your point earlier, many
2: of us will just continue to to be that hard worker to prove that we are that even to our own.
1: Do you think things are starting to change for you guys at the Brigham now that you have some of these policies in place and there's so much support there?
3: I think it's starting to change. We had one year where I think we had three pregnant residents all at the same time. And it actually was a great year, despite the fact that it probably made scheduling hard. The residents helped each other out in the OR. They would scrub each other out. And then after the baby came, they would scrub each other out to pump. And so it became this very collaborative situation. And it's something that I hope to see as this becomes more and more common over the years. We did some tangible things. You know, we have this mentorship program where if as soon as a resident tells the program director they're expecting a baby, they choose from a list of faculty members who are also mothers. And the idea is for the faculty to meet with her a few times over the pregnancy and to give her a space to talk about things that she might not feel comfortable talking about with the program director. You know, whether it's sort of mistreatment that she may be experiencing on a rotation or worried about child care. And we've found that having that camaraderie and that community is really important to try to prevent burnout and give you a safe space and make sure you're getting some experience-based advice. And then we copied the University of Michigan lactation policy, which was so obvious to do, but so beneficial. And it's distributed by the leadership. So it basically just says that, hey, we support you. We know you need to step out of cases to pump and it's totally fine You know, if you could just do it During a non-critical portion of the case, and even better if you can get a fellow resident to be there while you're not there. It gives people agency to say, hey, this is what I need. Mm -hmm. It is so obvious, right? Like, And there's probably a thousand things like that that are
2: so easy and so obvious that haven't been part of our fabric.
3: I think doing this study, I see that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that can make things a lot better. And those are examples of the low-hanging fruit. Culture change and... Being, you know, moonlighter or physician extender coverage, those are more high level things that obviously require some monetary investment, too. And those are sort of in the longer term, I think. I just think it needs to be discussed to find solutions. And I mean, the era of COVID has been sort of enlightening because we've had surgeons who are out sick and they can't operate for weeks. And we have found ways to financially support that. At As I understand it, it's at the department level. It just shows that it can be done. We can have expectation that surgeons were allowed to get sick. What? And we are allowed to take care for ourselves, (laughs) right? And we're allowed to grieve, right? If you lose a child, you're allowed to take time off of that. So I really hope that behind some of this work, we're going to be able to stop the narrative Mm -hmm. that the less I take care of myself, the stronger a surgeon I am. And, you know, I mean, to that end, it was really remarkable. And really fortunate for us that somebody who leads American surgery, like Eugene, took such an interest in this topic. And I think having people like him, you see, you know, he's kind of joking about how he's part of the older generation now. But seeing these people who have these ideas, who are coming up in the ranks and becoming the next leaders of American surgery, really make me hopeful that things are going to be changing in the very near future.
2: One thing that you and Debbie and I are all working on is a qualitative study. From second trial data, looking at parenting. And yeah, that is a really common thing that in the field, there's been now a lot of attention about leave and lactation, but not so much about what happens after.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's not until you have a child that you realize so much, you know, 80% of it comes after the baby comes out. You can't put it back in. and And it is so expensive. It's so time consuming. And you don't really think about sort of allocating resources for that. And people, a lot of people have that rude awakening after the baby comes. But, you know, I think that is an area that needs better support. MUSC in South Carolina, they offer their pediatric residents a stipend for childcare, sort of just recognizing that you're not making a very high salary and that childcare is extremely, extremely expensive. I haven't seen it offered. And, you know, I'm in Boston where it's a pretty high cost of living and. My colleague just told me that he spends $3,125 a month on daycare. And so having to make that sort of payment on a resident salary is staggering. And you almost have to be independently wealthy or have a partner who makes a good salary to be able to afford that. And I think that needs to be addressed because that widens the disparities between people who have the means to do that and people who don't. But to talk about who who does it well, you know, for child care, the Mayo Clinic has the sick child care center. They've had it for more than 20 years and they have a nurse practitioner on staff who can see your child if they're sick, can start antibiotics if that's what's needed. So you can continue to work and they'll take care of your child until you're done for the day. And it's free for everybody who works at the Mayo. And if you just want to look at it from a business perspective, they have said that the number of sick days that employees don't have to take because of having the child care center more than offsets the cost of running it.
1: So another thing that gets swept under the rug with all the focus parental leave is infertility.
3: You know, uh, a lot of female surgeons end up undergoing assisted reproduction. And part of that is because of the delay in childbearing. Because as we mentioned, there of older age at first birth compared to the partners of male surgeons. And so we looked at some of the data of what types of assisted reproduction they were using, how much that was costing, whether they were getting time off to do that. And it's a topic that really hasn't really been addressed very much and people don't talk about it. But the reality is that a lot of women are having IVF or other forms of assisted reproduction. On general, it takes I'm sorry, an average, it takes four cycles to Have one live pregnancy, one live birth. And those are costing people somewhere between $14,000 and $18,000 a cycle. And that is not covered in a lot of states and in a lot of institutions. We looked at whether people were taking time off to have those therapies. And if you look nationally, you know, I think there were studies looking at how much time, how many hours people invest on IVF therapy. And on average, people are are investing 16 work days into achieving a live birth. And yet for our surgeons, the majority of women are taking less than three days off to complete all, all the treatments, which includes, you know, oocyte retrieval under MAC anesthesia and a lot of invasive ultrasounds and blood tests. So it's something to be thoughtful about moving ahead, just knowing the high rate of assisted reproduction use. It's hard to get time off to do those things.
2: I did cryopreservation as a fellow, and before I did it, I actually had no idea how time-consuming it was. And maybe that's part of the problem, right, is people don't imagine that it should require any time off.
3: Yeah, and I think education could be built into early residency, just so people know about declining fertility and what the success rates actually are and possibly be plugged into ERT services and counseling within their own institutions so they can make educated decisions about family planning.
0: I'm hoping one of the outcomes of the paper will be for some of our residents to see some of the difficulties that can happen by waiting and to hopefully consider having kids at an earlier age and thus pushing residencies to consider how to normalize this whole process. So...
1: This has been a really enlightening conversation for me. My final question is, can you truly have it all? Dr. Rangel, you mentioned that people encourage you to go into a more family-friendly specialty. Did you? I'm not
3: going to lie. I've thought about it. And I tried to do some different cases. You know, By then, I was a PGY-4, kind of in the second half of my PGY-4 year and I tried to go back and do some cases that I thought would be conducive to less call in the future, being at home more and I I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't what I had wanted to do and I think compromising and spending 7 or 8 years training to do something and then ending up in a subspecialty that you don't enjoy is a recipe for burnout and being disillusioned. I would encourage everybody to find a mentor in the subspecialty that you're interested in going in and specifically address how that fits in with their family life, they might surprise you. And, you know, we all went into this because we had a dream of practicing surgery a very particular way. And and we love certain subspecialties and abandoning your dream isn't the answer. Do you think men get told that? Well, I guess I'm alluding to the idea
2: that do we expect surgeons to be absent fathers?
0: It's difficult to tell any particular person how to parent, but I, I will say for me, particularly in the younger years, it was important to literally put on my schedule. I'm leaving early to go pick up my kids. I'm leaving early to go take them out for ice cream and impromptu things. Since we're on call on weekends a lot, you know, you couldn't always just say, I'll do it on the weekend. So you do have to find those opportunities when it's not your OR day or it's an early clinic day and you just got to. You know, because all of us could stay in the office and work and continue to write grants and papers, but that'll always be there. But the opportunity to go do something for your child, I I feel will probably be memorable for them, but you've got to put it on your schedule you just got to block it out.
3: I think having somebody in a leadership position be really open about that speaks volumes to everybody who's watching to say, oh, this is what it looks like to be a successful surgeon. It looks like being the president of the AAS, but it also looks like somebody who knows that it's important to take his kid out for ice cream.
2: I remember being at AAS fall courses in my first year in practice and Chris Sanadé gave this talk about how to be a good citizen in your department. And his last slide was protect your family life and put it on your calendar and be aggressive about not allowing things to bleed into that. And I was like, mind blown. I was like, I can't believe people talk about their personal lives at work. I thought we weren't supposed to do that, which maybe is a little bit of a response to your first question. I definitely felt that pressure. Did you feel, Eugene, that you had to like earn that
0: privilege or you just did that from the beginning? I did it from the beginning. And I'll tell you, when I moved over to Texas Children's Hospital and the academic group, one of the uh, attendings who's in Cincinnati now, Mike Helmrack, very accomplished researcher and surgeon scientist. But it was him who told me as kind of the older person, you know, one of the nice things about academic practice is you, you can dictate your schedule a little bit. And so if you want to leave at half day and go go watch a baseball game, go do it. And he, he actually encouraged that. And I think at a young age for me as a first year academic attending, I was blown away by that. I was like, I'm going to do it. And then I would do it. And I was like, that was fun. I'm going to do that again. But I mean, it wasn't always a bulking, but it was something and just for personal care and, and family time and things like that. So, so I always encourage that to, uh, younger faculty that to, to normalize just being a person. I gave a talk this morning and I, I finished the grand rounds talking about remember your real legacy. And this was great advice given to me by Vic Garcia, who's a senior pediatric surgeon at Cincinnati Chamber, just a beautiful human being. And he said, Ug, this is kind of some parting words in one of my last clinics with him and said, you can do all this great research. You might discover something that might help some people or, or add to the knowledge. You'll write book chapters. But in the end, your real legacy is your family. That's all that matters. And this is before I had a family. And looking back now, I can say that is absolutely so true. And I always tell people, I finish my talks by saying, don't forget your legacy.
3: And I think, you know, you were the future, Vic Garcia, and paying it forward for the next generation, being so visible about it is really important. So much like we kind of looked up to these surgical giants when we started out in practice, there are also residents looking up to you in practice and being
2: vocal and visible. I don't think any of us on this podcast would discourage people from having children. It is an incredibly hard, like the hardest experience, which is pretty amazing to say after you've been through training but also amazingly rewarding.
3: You know, and I think it's a lot like surgical training. The best things come from difficult and hard-earned experiences. And the product at the end is the product of a long journey. And then you realize as your kids are getting older and older, how rewarding it is. But yes, it is the best achievement that you will have your entire lifetime, much more than whatever you've achieved in your surgical career. So very well worth it. Some of the most important things that you can do is to keep advocating for what you need as a working parent. And that's different for everybody. Find yourself the role models and mentors near you that lead a life and prioritize their family the same way you'd like to. Have achieved what you hope to and keep asking them for advice. Yeah, I really have faith in those networks that you have. You're the generation that's changing the conversation and that's why we're having this conversation today. And I think together we're really redefining what it looks like to be a surgeon.
0: Until next time, dominate the day.